Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey friends, happy Friday. Today's May 12th, and I'm really happy that you're here on the Happy Hour because... I have a husband of a wife that's already been on the show. So episode 516, Kirsten Watson came on and we had just a really great conversation. And today her husband, Benjamin, is on the show. Now, if you like football, you might recognize the name Benjamin Watson. He spent 16 years in the NFL, but he has a book coming out this summer called The New Fight for Life, Row, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. And I had the opportunity to read his book early and knew that I wanted to have a conversation with him about What does it mean as a body of Christ, as believers in our current culture, to talk about this pro-life movement? And how do we make space for the nuance and for the grace and for the realities and for the truth and all of it? And we just have a really great conversation today about, first of all, why an ex-football player is wanting to have this conversation. And I think you're going to be encouraged by this so much. All right, you guys, here is my conversation with Benjamin Watson. Benjamin Watson, welcome to the happy hour. Uh, Great to be with you. Excited. I'm happy you're here. I I need to go and figure out how many dynamic duos we've had on the show because your wife's already been here. We've already had our happy hour and now you're here and I'm so excited to have, uh, let's say I was going to say her other half. Your better half has already been here. Yeah, my better half. Um, I, I'm just, I'm just here to support her. Honestly, like I'm letting her <laughs> pave the way for me, and so I am grateful that she came on the show and that she didn't uh, say she left a good impression, and so that you felt okay allowing uh, her, her, her second half to be with you. She paved the way for you, and I'm so happy, yeah. um, Benjamin. We met in January at a conference that you and I both were attending called Stand for Life. Um, a pro-life conference. And I knew after watching one of your breakouts that you did with um, Lecrae and some other friends, I was like, I got to have you to come talk on. And then you're like, well, let me tell you, I got a book coming out. And so (laughs) I'm so excited. Before we jump in, I want you to introduce yourself to my listeners. Oh, wow. Um, I'm Benjamin Watson. I I love to say I'm a servant of the most high God. Uh, But on this earth, on this earth, I am husband to Kirsten Watson, going on 18 years in July. I can't Congrats, believe it. Congrats, guys. Yes. Yeah. Um, she put up with me for that long. And then uh, I'm also a father of seven kids. Pray for us. Send donations to us. We'll take all the above. Are your last two uh, in preschool? Is that what I just uh, realized? They are. They just turned four. Okay. And so they will be going to pre-K next year. Okay. And so they, we actually took them to the school about two weeks ago for kind of like a, you know, a tryout day. And we held our breath. And then when we came to pick them up, they were crying, but they were crying because they loved it so much. That's a good so sign. So that was actually, yes, that was a good sign. And so hopefully they'll, they'll be accepted. I already have five other kids that go to the school. They already are taking all of my money anyway. So they may as well <laughs> just give them everything you have. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, also, my listeners will care about this. You used to play a sport that I love. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, I played. I didn't know. You know, I, I know your listeners are some amazing <laughs> people. Um, I played a little football. Uh, played uh, in the NFL for 16 years. I started at university. Actually, I started at Duke University and transferred. To oh, university I didn't know that. 
Yeah, okay. that's another that's another podcast. It's amazing. There it is. And uh, play the University of Georgia. Go dogs! Back to back national champs. <laughs> last two years, got to put that out there. The and only thing I put- have to say about that, Benjamin, is that one year that Texas beat y'all. It like what was it like 2018, 2017? It was a while ago. <laughs> like I'm I don't even remember that. Oh, you blocked it out of your memory? No, I no, no, I just don't remember. I, oh no, no, I do remember the sh- that. 2019 I, Sugar Bowl. No, y'all killed us. You know why I know? Because I was playing for the New Orleans Saints at that time, and I went to the game, and I was standing on the sideline. This is how I knew it was going to be bad for Georgia that day. Um, and I love my dogs, 100%. I, I, I stayed there till the end, on the sideline with the guys. I'm red and black through and through. But I knew it was going to be a bad day when the Longhorn almost oh ate the gosh. Bulldog. That is my before, favorite thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> When I saw that, I already knew it was going to be bad for the dogs and it was going to be a long day for us. And it was. So, no, no. Yeah, I, I, Listen, that was a bad day for us. It's the only thing I can bring to the table because you guys have had an amazing couple of years. And, you know, it's that um, it, it's that moment. I'll give you an example of what that was like. This last fall, I took two of my boys to Texas Tech University for a preview. And mm-hmm. I was praying the whole time, please let none of my children end up at Texas Tech. Go go Red Raiders. <laughs> it is what it is. Unless they're paying for it. Unless they're paying for it. Unless, they, unless they're, they're paying for it, they go wherever they want. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. But when we were there in Lubbock, um, you know, just a couple of weeks earlier, Texas had lost at Tech. And, you know, my boy yeah. Bijan had fumbled that ball and all the things. Yeah. I'm telling you, when we were in the assembly at Texas Tech, they played that that clip of them beating us like on repeat a million times, and I had to sit through the whole thing. I was like, so all that to say, I understand what it feels like when you get that one moment, you just want to bring it up, and so that's what I brought it up for you. Okay, you played at University of Georgia. Go dogs! I can cheer for yep, you guys. Go, go dogs! And then you ended up at a couple different teams. Yep, yep. I uh, drafted in 2004 to the New England Patriots, and I played there for six years. After leaving there, we went around the country. We went to Cleveland for for a little bit, went to New Orleans, went to Baltimore for a little bit, and ended up back my 16th year. In 2019 was my last year. My last game was in January of 2020. We lost to the Tennessee Titans in the playoffs, my last Mm -hmm. game. I cried the whole way off the field. Uh, Ended up back in New England for that one year. So I kind of completed the circle. Oh, that's good. I didn't know that. Did you yeah. did you know going into that game that if you lost, it would be like the end of that kind of era thing? Is that what the emotions were there? You knew it was that? Yeah, I knew. I knew. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it should have been the end. I mean, you had Kirsten on, on the, the, the pod a while ago. She would have told you I should have been done like a decade before that. I think she kind uh, of she mentioned probably- it, but... <laughs> <laughs> and she definitely was right. Uh, but I knew, I mean, the, the, the body can take but so much. And, you know, it's, it's a young man's game. As they say, I was 39 in my last game. And uh, I, I knew that it was just time to figure out what we were going to do, where we were yeah. going to live long term. Mm-hmm. And you get to a point where you're moving around at that stage of my career. And it's a year here, a year there. And we always stayed together. We moved our entire family wherever mm-hmm. we went. We didn't want to be apart. Um, and, you know, when the kids look at you and say, I want to make friends, but yeah. I, I can't because I know we're going to move. Right. Then that means it's time to do the best you can to stay. Mm-hmm. And so so it, it, I was it, I, I, I poured out everything. I was done. That's why 16 the years is a long time. I mean, isn't the average like 
two or something for in the NFL. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's it's low. like three and a half. I mean, yeah. obviously the guys that you know, the names you know, they've right. been in the league for a long time. But when you look at the numbers and the averages, I mean, it's about three and a half years. Yeah. So um, I, w- I was fortunate. I was also very stubborn, had a whole lot of lot of injuries uh, that I'm dealing with, but um, it was part of my journey. Well, I love that. And so I wanna, I'm going to ask you the same way I asked uh, your bride questions at the end of our episode. I'm going to ask you a couple of football questions at the end, but I want to talk about this book. And Benjamin, I met you at the Stand for Life conference, and I don't know if I was able to tell you this, but when um, Lauren reached out to me about coming to this conference and being a part of it, I said, hey, I'd love to do it, be a part of this, I think. Can I have a conversation with Elizabeth about this? And these are mutual friends of ours that run this conference. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a conversation with Elizabeth because I just wanted to say, hey, I'm 100% pro-life. There's not anything in me that is not pro-life. I said, but the language of pro-life has been hard mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, and it seems to be really associated with a political party instead of like a, a faith ideology about human life. And I told her, I said, I'm really concerned about other aspects of pro-life. Like, I'm I'm concerned for those who are incarcerated. I'm concerned for the mother at, on the other side of the tracks that is just can't get it together. And she's like, you're in the right spot. And so I was like, I felt comfortable going because that's where I kind of come from. And I read your book. And the book is called The New Fight for Life. And it, it comes out this summer. Row, race, and a pro-life commitment to justice. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about it. But first, I just want to say, you just told us this history. You're, you're a dad. You've got seven kids. Played in the NFL for 16 years. How does someone like you get into the conversation of pro-life? Well, probably because I felt it just exactly like you. I, I felt like, where is where's the nuance? Where is the um, holism when it comes to the issue of life? Um, as a believer, I believe that people are created in the image of God. I believe in human dignity. Uh, I believe that from womb to tomb, human beings have value, whether you agree with them or not, whether they vote Democrat or Republican, whether they are rich or poor, whatever their ethnicity is, uh, whatever things they struggle with. I believe that humans in general have value, no matter their stage of development. And much of the pro-life conversation from a political aspect, you're right, um, and from a culture war aspect, has been largely focused on saving preborn babies, which mm. is vitally important, which is worth standing on the hills. It is. It's, 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 a, it's, it's something that we should all care about. But there seems to be a vacuum when it comes to the rest of the life. And I think that there are a lot of people that feel, quite frankly, caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like politically they're that far on the right. They don't feel politically that far on the left, but they do care about people. And they care about human thriving and human flourishing. And so for us, it was kind of a weird baptism into, quote unquote, pro-life advocacy. Um, when we had our first child, Grace. Grace is 14 years old now. And I remember we went and got a 3D40 ultrasound. This is back in 2009, uh, 2008. She was born in January 2009. And I remember sitting next to Kirsten and looking at the screen. And the technician was rubbing over her, the stuff on her belly. And I saw Grace on the screen. And she yawned Mm. and I yawned like I caught the yawn from the baby in utero. Crazy. And we left that place. And Kirsten said, you know, one day I would love to provide this service for other women. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but just be able to see, you know, the baby in utero with this type of an ultrasound. Well, fast forward a decade. We then partnered up with a couple of organizations and we started 
purchasing ultrasounds in places where we live. So we placed one at a pregnancy resource center in Baltimore. We did one in New Orleans and one in my hometown and, and one in Georgia now. And, you know, Baltimore, all these different places. And when you're playing the in the NFL and you do something like that, I guess it's mm-hmm. newsworthy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how we got kind of involved. And again, we never woke up one day and said, we want to be pro-life or we want to, you know, stomp the pavement and march and all that type of stuff. That wasn't mm-hmm. our goal. Our goal was simply to elevate and love life mm-hmm. um, at its earlier stages, but also how that coincides with some of the work that we've done throughout my career with people from all backgrounds that were suffering from other things. You mentioned incarceration. I mean, the, mm-hmm. there's so many life issues, and we believe that there's this web of life and this web of justice that all of us can be involved in. I had um, Trinae McGee. Are, do you know her? Or, okay. Yeah, um, no, that, that's, that's a little sis. I will, I will chop your hand off if you come too close to little sis. I will protect her. She is, she is a jewel. I'm glad you had her on. It was a joy to talk with her, and I met her at the same conference I was at. She yep. um, was on in April, and you know, people, if they're listening, they can't see you that you're a black man, and, and Trinae's a black woman, and. Um, for so often, you talk in your book what I thought was really important, I think it's good to talk about, is you talk about the history behind many black women, and then you even talk about black churches and black pastors, the history behind that conversation of wanting to scream and say, this is you know, my body, my choice. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people, if they're not understanding the history behind where this is coming from, it can get confusing, I think, from the people listening and I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I think it can be confusing for the for the women of like, where do mm. I stand on this? Like, because there has been history in our country of black women's bodies being taken advantage of. So can you talk a little bit about this? Trinae talked about how, you know, the abortion industry is really, it is disproportionately black mothers who are having abortions. And so we all have to kind of go, what 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 is this? You know, like, Another conversation that we're having on the happy hour this month is why are our prison systems disproportionately black men when it's Ooh, not the major? Yeah, so we're having these conversations. But can yeah. you give? Can we talk a little bit about? You talk about that with women in general. You also talk about with the black church as well. And you make a bold statement. Let me get there. Hold tight. Here we go. <laughs> you said when it comes to abortion, I'm convinced that black believers in America are uniquely positioned to be the conscience of this nation. Yeah. And that made me stop in my tracks. And so I want to know why you believe that and some of the history behind how we got here. Oh, wow. Um, that's a lot there. But it's so good. I- I'm glad you're having these conversations. I'm glad you're doing it with um, authenticity and with grace um, because it's important and you have a, a trusted voice to make people think. Um, I- I'll start with the last part when I talk about being the the conscience of the nation And when we look at issues of civil rights specifically, and I believe that abortion is a civil rights issue, when you talk Mm -hmm. about defending vulnerable people and people have been taken advantage of, the black church specifically has been a voice of conscience and reason in this country. Even if we need to look no further than the civil rights movement of the 60s, or we need to look no further than emancipation when it was a black pastor who said, hey, my people need 40 acres and a mule, and they need land to be able to to till and to be able to have a living. That came from the black church. And so the black church has this legacy of understanding what it means to be 
taken advantage of in this present world, but also understanding that we have, yes, we have hope and glory and hope in Christ, but the scripture calls us to live lives of justice and calls us to live lives in which we take our faith and put feet on it and use that faith in order to correct injustice in this present age. And that's been the the legacy uh, of the black church. Um, you know, black women are three to four times more likely than their white counterparts to have abortions. Mm. It is estimated that black women account for over 50% of the abortions, although we make up 13% of the population. Right. And so part of the reason in even writing this book, Jamie, was I, I, I got... I got tired of hearing that stat over and over again and no one ever being bold enough or educated enough or loving enough to ask why, Mm. why is that the case? Because honestly, there's only two ways that two reasons. Number one, you could either say that black mothers and fathers enjoy or are more open to killing their preborn children than other ethnicities. And that's okay if you want to say that, but you got to say it. The other side of that coin is what are the um, economic, educational, cultural, societal, systemic factors that perhaps make this demographic more vulnerable and targeted when it comes to abortion? Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to do in the book was unpack that. And you mentioned the my body, my choice, which, you know, from a scientific standpoint, we can debunk that mantra. But even in speaking to so many black women who have had abortions, much some of the same people that you've spoken to and rub shoulders with at that conference at Stand for Life mm-hmm. would say that part of the attraction of that statement is that women in general have not had autonomy mm-hmm. or agency, not just in this country, but in general. And as believers, we understand why. We can go back to the garden and see where a man threw his woman under the bus when God came looking for him in the garden. And he said, it was that woman you gave me. Mm -hmm. And so we understand how that stuff trickles down. But then specifically as black women in this country who initially had value on this land for their ability to reproduce Mm -hmm. and then were taken advantage of by those who were oppressing them. When you talk about rape and those sorts of things, mm-hmm. and then you fast forward to today, all the different instances that instances that we've seen of black women being either not listened to, mm-hmm. being disregarded, or perhaps the fact that they make 58 cents on the dollar for the same job, even though they're more educated, all these sorts of things roll into one. And you see women saying, especially black women saying, I want to be able to control something because everything seems to be taken away from me. Right, right. You know, you talk about in here, you tell a story about, and I, I don't know what page it was on, so I can't find it, but you tell a story towards the end about, I believe it was a pastor at your home church preaching a sermon um, previous to the overturn of Roe uh, last year in 2022. And um, you were talking about how a lot of times we're not having enough conversations within our churches mm-hmm. from the pulpit mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. And your pastor has made a really bold statement. If I could find it, I would quote him exactly. And he said something along the lines of that he understands the pro-choice and the pro-life. And he says that he he said, um, I'm both. Is that what mm-hmm. he said? He says, I asked God a rhetorical question. Would you be pro-choice or would you be pro-life? And God gave an unexpected answer. He said both. 
I said the church was packed to capacity, but you could have heard a pin drop. He goes on to say, God is the author of life. God is not the author of death. God gave man the power to choose which voices to believe and to belong and to follow. In the beginning, man chose to listen to the wrong voice and the consequences of that choice were devastating. And when man makes the wrong choice today, the consequences are still devastating. He looked at the congregation and said, God is pro-life and God is pro-choice, but nowhere in his word do I see where God is pro-abortion. By the word of God, abortion is wrong in all cases. And then he, he goes on to say that God gave us the power to choose, but he says, choose life. Mm. And I thought that was pretty compelling and bold of him. Mm-hmm. Although it shouldn't be odd for a pastor to preach about this issue from the pulpit. I was looking at a, um, a, a recent survey and it said something to the effect of under 10% of people who attend churches have heard a message on this topic of abortion. Mm. The highest number was amongst evangelicals, um, and it was like 20-something percent in in, in certain strand of evangelicalism. But the point is, most people don't hear these types of messages from the pulpit. Mm. And again, I, I ask why, because this church also is a predominantly Black church. Part of the reason why I think is so many people in our churches, whether in the pews or in the pulpit, are impacted by abortion. Mm. Abortion is the thing that uh, is so painful for a lot of people that we don't want to bring it up. Mm. Number one, we don't want to offend people. Number two, it's politicized. Mm. But number three, we many of us feel a guilt and a shame that we have not yet been able to deal with through the blood of Christ. Mm. And so we don't talk about it. And stats say that four in 10 women, possibly higher than that, inside the church who attend church regularly have had abortions, mm. which I also say, well, it's probably about four in 10 men then mm. who are involved right. with them as well. And so right. you have this congregation and in the black community, it's even higher, obviously, because of the numbers where so many people are what we would call post-abortive. They're dealing with this in some respect. But as we walk through scripture, the issue of life, the issue of justice, the issue of um, love and compassion and forgiveness um, are all things that we should be preaching about from the pulpit. And so there are pastors, this is not to bash pastors at all. Um, There are plenty who are speaking about these issues, but the challenge I think to those who are leading a flock is to step into this this ministry, I would say, Mm -hmm. especially in a post-road time when Roe has been overturned, especially now, Because as you know, on the state level, these battles are raging and people, especially in churches, need to be equipped with how to address the issue in their own lives and also in the lives of other people around them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I had conversations with many people at that event that we were at talking about a post-Roe world. And really the conversations were kind of saying to the terms of like the church now has to figure out a a new way to think about this because the battle that had been fought um, it's almost like the analogy you used of like football, you know, you play your first half, you know what you're doing, you get into the locker room and like, okay, we got to redo things because we got a second half and it looks different. And I think the church is going to have to say, how do we adjust to, you know, my particular state, the state of Texas, where abortion is illegal? Well, now what do we do with women? And you, you say this in a section called keeping up appearances. And I think this is also one of the reasons that churches have a hard time talking about it because they also don't know what to deal with women who are in an unexpected unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. You say there's an old saying that Christians are the only army that shoot their own wounded. 
when it comes to the church's treatment of unwed mothers, that saying often holds true. And I was like, yes, and unfortunately, <coughs> yes, that is true. And so how do you see that affecting this conversation about in this about pro-life movement? Yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate because we don't want to be identified with others who we look down upon. Mm. A lot of times we look at ourselves in a better light than others if we're not afflicted with the same sin. Mm-hmm. And so we can easily disassociate ourselves or point the finger and be puffed up because that's not my vice. That's mm-hmm. not my issue. And we forget how wretched we all are. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that you accept everything and you lower the standard. I think the, the flip side of that is opening the gateway and saying, hey, everything is OK. Do whatever you want to do. And as Paul would say, no, you don't keep sinning because grace abounds. No, right. it's, it's actually the opposite. Um, but we engage those um, because, again, going back to their dignity and their value, we are compelled to love them. And there are so many women um, who I've seen, even in, you know, I work with an organization called Human Coalition and we, you know, provide direct services for pregnant women and do several other things. And there's, 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 there's so many who would, who would come into churches if they didn't feel quote unquote ostracized or, mm. or judged. And again, we are called to judge as believers. We're called to have a standard. But there's a way in which you do so. So your question about churches, what, what what can churches? Number one, you need churches need to be speaking about this issue. They need to be educating. Um, number two, we need to be teaching our children when it comes to issues of sexuality. Mm-hmm. I talk about that too in the book, the fact that we yeah. as believers many times are taboo and don't want to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. And part of that also, Jamie, is because of our own missteps, okay, yes. our own exactly, our own guilt mm-hmm. when it comes to sex. But if we're not teaching our children and being honest with them about sexuality that God created and what that means and mm-hmm. how that should, we should operate in that, then um, we are doing them a tremendous disservice. I, I think fathers, engaging fathers, challenging fathers um, is another place where, where we need to go. But there are so many different, there are so many things, 76%. And this stat always gets me. 76% of abortion determined women say they would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. So all we see is my body, my choice. Um, I do what I want to do. And yes, there are some women and some men who, I mean, I ran into, I was talk, talking to a woman the other day and her husband, her boyfriend said, I will pay you thousands of dollars to go get an abortion. That, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. But there also are a lot of, of women who in this new fight for life, we must engage with because one thing here or there could save that life. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just worried about the protecting the child. We need to service the mom as well. That's, that's perhaps more important. That's so good. And I think you mentioned this post-abortive care. And I think that's important, especially when you read the stats of four in 10 women in our churches. If you go to a church with 100, that's 40 people sitting in your pews that day that yeah. have been affected by abortion. That is a lot of people every single Sunday. And so I think post-abortive care as well. I have a little soapbox I'm on right now, Benjamin, and I'm trying yeah. to like figure out if I need to like get angry about it or not, but I'm gonna tell it to do. you real quick, okay? Probably do, yeah. I'm not gonna th- name this company, okay? But we have a health sharing organization, okay? Does that, know you know what I'm talking about? Like an insurance health sharing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Oh gosh, my, my I'm getting all sweaty pitch just thinking about it because it makes me so angry. They and I understand it is a Christian organization and they have values, but in their statement of what they cover, they will not cover an unwed mother's pregnancy. Mm. And the reason that's so difficult for me is because I was pregnant twice in college. Like I was, mm. I was pregnant. I was one of those mm. women facing an unplanned pregnancy. Mm. And I just think because. I, I had support because I had family. I, I never had to get to this decision. And I also had two miscarriages. But I just think about yeah. myself at 19 and 21 and think, yeah. what if the church looked at me and said, you know, if you were married, we could help you. Yeah. Or a medical sharing company said, if you were married, we could we could help you take care of your baby. And when you talk about 74% of women say they would, they would have their baby, carry that baby to term if they had different mm-hmm. circumstances. I just think that's one example that I'm really upset about these days and I'm on a soapbox about, and I think I'm going to write yeah. an angry letter, but. <laughs> write, write, just, write an angry op-ed and we can all retweet it. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I don't want to lose my coverage either. <laughs> um, and so it is things like that where I think, man, the church has got to, got to step up. And I, and I want to ask you this, and I think the church is a little afraid as well, because I mentioned this earlier, you mentioned it, and you, we t- you talk about it in this book, and I was so happy because we talk about politics and how politics gets in the play here and how the word pro-life, it, and we're not, neither one of us are sitting here saying what line of the aisle we line on or where you should line anything. But what we can't all probably agree on is the word pro-life leans right. And so yeah. probably most black Americans would lean a little bit left for reasons that we're not talking about today. And so there's some tension there. And you say in your book, you say the truth is there are no absolutes in this political equation. As a result, we need to extend grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ when discussing the issues they prioritize in voting. No matter which candidate we vote for, we must be mindful that there are believers on both sides of the debate and not use the ballot box as a litmus test as a litmus test for who is a Christian and who is not. And so I want to just talk about maybe the frustration that you have felt or even if you have any conversation around how do we take this pro-life conversation? And it's not that I, I am not one that says we need to pull it out of politics because politics enforce policies and policies affect people. And we need to be voting for policies and we need to be yeah. informed in politics as believers. Yes, but I feel like mm-hmm. guards go up when you say the word pro-life for some people. And so what are your thoughts on that? I, I've waffled, honestly. I felt like, you know what? I'm I'm not pro-life. I'm not going to call myself pro-life. I'm going to think of another term to call myself. Yeah. And then you realize at some point you'll have to redefine that term as well. And so do you go back and say no? this is the essence of what this means or do you run from it? And I've gone back and forth. I've chosen to say, no, I'm pro-life. Let me tell you what it means. Mm. I think you have to be prepared though for guards to go up. And part of that is because of the political system that we live in. But I have a good friend, you know him, his name is Justin Gibney. You probably had him on the show at some point. If not, you probably- He's been on the show, yes. Yeah, of course, I know he has. But one thing he, he, he told me, um, about this issue and really any issue is that everyone needs to, whatever side you vote on as believers, you're never going to find the whole host of uh, of the kingdom in one political party because mm-hmm. our, poli- politics aren't, our, our politics aren't set up that way. But what we do need to do as people of the cross, we need to be willing to push our party towards things that are biblically sound. Mm-hmm. And so- it, as it seems right now, and I'm just speaking in generalities, 
If we look at a Democratic Party that um, does not have life for preborn children and protections for preborn children on their party platform, we need to push them in that direction. Mm-hmm. If we're on a Republican Party who seem, and this is again, this is this is in general, who seems to not care or pass policies for redress or repair or correcting injustice that is historical or for social services and a safety net that we see as being part of the scriptures when it talks about um, in the book of Amos and justice rolling down or the book of James not taking advantage of, of your of your workers or in the book of Psalms, righteousness and justice, all those sorts of things, then we need to push them in that direction because neither party has the, the whole you know, swath mm-hmm. of what it means to be yeah. a believer. And that's why it's really frustrating. And that's why it's frustrating when I hear people say, you can't be a Christian if you vote for X. Mm-hmm. You can't be a believer. I don't know how a believer will vote for this person. Mm-hmm. Now, I felt that way sometimes in my humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't believe that dude. How could he do that? Mm-hmm. But, the, but the actual... In actuality, we can't say that because of our political system. And I truly believe, and I talk about this a bit in the book, that from a policy standpoint, this is how we live our lives. And so we need to vote. Mm-hmm. Like We need to look at policies that ensure human thriving, even from issues like, like education. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be involved in those sorts of things. And, and maybe sometimes that is outside of your party line. But you know what? There are a lot of people that think the same way. I think, Jamie, I think that we only hear the loudest voices on the extremes. You're so right, Benjamin. Like, yep. like the, the activists on either side mm-hmm. fill up the, all the airspace. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people that are somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. that are a bit more reasonable. It's just that the loudest voices and sadly, the, the biggest paychecks <laughs> are yep. on the extremes. Yeah, I just was doing an event in Lubbock recently at a pregnancy resource center and just was blown away at the work they're doing, the commitment they have to the women that walk through their door. They talked about the ultrasound machines and what a difference that makes. And I just couldn't help but wonder, like, they're not sitting around having these arguments. You know what they're doing? They're going to work and serving women in their community. And and and, and they just don't have the loudest voices. Because you know what? They got a job and they got a mission and they got stuff to do and they got their head yeah. down working. And so it was really, really encouraging. Um, Benjamin, I told you that I was going to tell you how much I love this book. And I really, really think this is an important book right now for the Christian community on what it looks like to fight this mm-hmm. fight um, because having a pro-life commitment to justice is what God calls us to. It's what he's asking of us. And so um, I'm just grateful that, that you're willing to, I don't know. Do you, if you feel like you put your neck out there, does it feel like that kind of book to you? Um, Yeah, a bit, a bit, but, okay. but this is the thing. I, I, I feel like this is, this is where God has me. And this is where I've been speaking over the last several years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, People ask me about that, and I think that people, hopefully, people know what to expect from from me, and that uh, my heart, though, is my heart is justice. My, mm-hmm. my heart is is for for historical wrongs, especially in a in a in a racialized country, and how that plays into the issue of abortion is for us to be able to turn off the faucet mm-hmm. of making people, especially Black women and communities, vulnerable to this this stain this evil. And it has to be holistic. 
I don't believe we solved this, especially during this time after Roe. I don't believe we solved this just by pinpointing certain areas. I think that it's going to take an entirely different effort than what we've had before. But I think that we, and especially the church, understands that. And my hope is to enter into that conversation. But if you would have asked me 10 years ago while I was trying to make the Pro Bowl, like if I was going to start talking about abortion, I would have said, you got to be crazy. <laughs> right. It's great how God directs our paths and we don't know where it's going. You know, that's for yeah. sure. And I just want to highlight for the listener a story that you shared at the very beginning when you didn't know this was going to be what God was going to have you talking about. And it really started with your very own ultrasound of your first child. And then Kirsten saying, hey, can we we want other women to be able to see this. And, and you used your resources, what you had to do that. And there's women, if you're a Christian woman listening who's had an abortion and you have found mm. freedom in the blood and sacrifice of Jesus – Start an, a, a, a class in your church for post-abortive women. I promise you it'll fill up on the first day. Like there are women who would be so grateful for that. And so we all have the opportunity to do that. So congrats on this book. What's the release date? June 20. June, June 20, 20. 20. Yep. June 20, The New Fight for Life, Row, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. Thank you so much for this book. Benjamin, here come my football questions. You ready? I'm ready. Far right. away. You live in Atlanta. Are you a Falcons fan? Can, did you read my bio at all? Well, yeah. What does it say? I know you. No, I played for the New Orleans Saints. Of course, I'm not a Falcons fan. Okay. Do the Saints and the Falcons have a lot of beef? I don't know NFL, honestly. Yeah, yeah they do. They do. Okay. They do. They got a lot of beef. And uh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm, you know, the, the Georgia people, this, this might come back to haunt me if I ever run for office in Georgia, but I am not a Falcons fan. I do love the GM there because he's a friend of mine. Uh, but I'm not a Falcons fan. I mean, I played against them, and I love, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a who that. I can't okay. really, but I am, I am a Bulldog. Here's what's funny is I don't know much about the NFL, obviously. I didn't know y'all had beef. <laughs> but your Falcons just got one of our Longhorns, B. John Robinson. Did. That's a great pick. That is a great I was going to ask if you thought this was a good place for him to land. You know, Terry Fontenot is the GM there. He's a friend of mine. I was with him in New Orleans. He was assistant GM there. And he's done a lot this offseason for the Falcons, you know, revamped the defense. And they got a lot of offensive weapons. But Bijan Robinson. So I do a little college football on the side. I, I work with SEC Network. And so we get to watch a little bit of Texas. But Bijan, I mean, you talk about a running back that can do it all. And the great thing is he gets to play indoors, which I, I, I'm I, a I'm a snob. I don't like to get dirty. I don't want to be hot. I don't want to be cold. Oh, my gosh. You're a football player. <laughs> yeah. You know, I ended up in New England. I had to do all those sorts of things. But when I got to, don't, to the domes, you know, uh -huh. play indoors, it's like well, luxury football. Here's a question. Why do all of these cold teams have outdoor fields? Is, that, is it their home field advantage? I mean – we say that and and there is something to that once you've been out there and you practice yeah. in it and i mean there were times in practice in new england when it would be snowing at practice and bill belichick would not let us go inside mm -hmm. but when we get a team like the colts come to town i mean there is an advantage there yeah. but I think you should put a dome on all the stadiums in my opinion i literally one time someone was like hey do you want to come up to where what's the cheat green bay packers where are they oh yeah yeah yeah, the Packers, yeah. They're like, hey, do you want to come up here and speak and we can get you tickets? And it was like December. I was like, uh, no, uh-uh. I mean, as long as you're indoors, it'll be fine. Like, you'll only be outside for a little bit. I always say, you know, people complain about being in cold weather places. And I say, you know what? I worked outside, though. Like, you you literally got in your garage, in your car, went to work, came back. You were outside for literally 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I was outside for three and a half hours with some tights on. <laughs> with some tights on. Okay, so <laughs> you guys got Bijan. He's like the favorite player I've ever watched, and I'm dying to have him on the happy hour. I was hoping to get him on before the draft, and it didn't happen. But let's talk college football. Now, The you work for the SEC, and the Longhorns are heading to the SEC. Yeah. In your personal opinion, is this good? Is this bad? What What is this going to do for us? Are we going to get demolished every single weekend? I mean – Let's see, my corporate answer. What's my corporate answer and my – so, see, I'm old enough. What's your on-air SEC someone's asking you answer, and then give me your personal you and I and Kirsten and Aaron are having burgers in your backyard answer. We are excited to welcome (laughs) the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma, two great football traditions, uh, two great fan bases. I mean, when you think about college football, you think about Texas and Oklahoma, and to have them come into the SEC, which is the best – um, conference top to bottom in the nation. Uh, it is going to be an incredible opportunity for these student athletes to be seen around the country. Uh, this is going to be an exciting time in college football, uh, something like we've never seen before. And you I do are believe such that- a professional, Benjamin. That was your on TV <laughs> professional answer. <laughs> and I do believe that to be true, honestly. I mean, when you think but- about Texas, the thing about Texas, University of Texas, I mean, I remember playing with Colt McCoy. Back in 2010, he got drafted to the Browns and I was there. And in the offseason, we went down to UT um, to do some workouts. And I remember walking to the stadium, the eyes of Texas are upon you, all that stuff. And I'm like, man, that's a lot of eyes. <laughs> and so, uh, We're I, all I, watching I think, you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's going to be great. Now, when they enter the SEC, are there going to be some growing pains? I think so. Um, largely because of, you know, week in, week out, there's no conference as, as tough I think, uh, physically demanding in the play as the SEC. Um, Has the conference expanded before and teams adjusted? Yes. And is Texas poised to do that? Yes. They have one of the, if not the largest recruiting base um, in America. They just signed uh, Arch Manning. Yeah, Arch Manning. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I I think Texas is going to be fine long term because of all that. I mean, they've got a pipeline that Mm -hmm. you really don't want to see if they actually get it going. Yeah. As a Georgia fan, I, I just want them to be secondary. I want them to be good, but not as good as Georgia. I'm happy for you guys. You know, I love watching football so much, and I have Texas tickets, and we go to all the games, and mm-hmm. it's going to be exciting when this transition happens because we're going to get to see teams that we haven't been able to see. I mean, Alabama yeah. was here last year. Yeah, think about that first game of the year, the Alabama game. I mean, that was a prime Best time game I've game. ever been to in my entire life, yeah. first of all. <laughs> The, the the atmosphere there was, was was incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's really great. Do you watch more call? You work for the SEC. Are you still watching professional football on Sundays and Mondays I and Thursdays? Do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Saturdays once college is over, um, I still do watch professional football. Um, I, I I don't really have a favorite favorite team. Obviously, the teams I played for, I watch them. But you know, I don't know as many people playing. I mean, now that Tom Brady's gone, it's like I don't really know anybody uh, that's left. <laughs> But but our kids, but me and the kids have like a, a pick them, you know, so every week we fill out all the, the teams. Oh, I that love we it. And then last year I like went to Target and Kirsten, <laughs> when I walked in the door with all these shopping bags from Target, Kirsten gave me like that side eye, like, what uh-huh. are you doing? But I went and bought all these prizes. So every week you could you could win like a blender or some art, some art stuff or some Legos 
or you could win like a gift card. That's and I would put I'll put the prize in the cabinet. And so we would tally the scores on like Monday, no, Tuesday morning after the Monday night game. And then whoever won. And my daughter kicked our butt every single time. <laughs> You've got your own fantasy football league going on yeah. in your house. <laughs> but my daughter killed us. She won I like, love it. I mean, there's only 17, no, 18, 17, 18 weeks. And she's like, she, she won like half of them. I love it so much. I love it. Okay, my last question for you before we go about football. You played a lot of years in the NFL. Do you have a story or a moment or a teammate that you're like, this was one of like one of my prize moments from being spending 16 mm. years playing football professionally? Yes, I do. Um, and it doesn't really have anything to do with – well, it has a lot to do with football. But in 2015, I was playing for the New Orleans Saints – and it was probably my best year statistically. I was a team captain. Uh, very fond memories of that year. Uh, me and a guy named Luke McCown, who you made, a, you made. He's a Texas guy. Lives in Texas. He went to La Tech. His sons are. He's Josh McCown's brother. You know, they're they're like a quarterback family. His mm-hmm. his young sons are in Texas. You're going to hear about them. Okay. But he and I um, were kind of spiritual leaders on that team, so to speak, and. At the end of the year, we had a guy who wanted to get baptized. His name was was Brandon Cooks. He's a wide receiver. Um, he's still playing, actually. And that end of that year, we we baptized him and another player in the rehab pool at the facility. We asked the trainers if it was okay to get in the pool, mm. and Brandon wanted to get baptized. And so we we're like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it here. I mean, this is our church family, mm-hmm. basically. And so yeah. he was baptized there. Other players gathered around. Some coaches peeped in and watched. And it was just one of those moments that was probably my fondest memory in the league. Because I love that. you just see how, yeah, it's about football. Yeah, we got a job to do. We love our job. We want to get good at it. But inside every person and every man, there is a spirit man that is going to far outlive our physical man. And and to see young men, you know, have a hunger for that, you know, that 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 makes me ex- even more excited than playing the game. That's awesome. It's just this huge reminder as consumers, as the audience watching a game, whether it's on Saturday or Thursday or Sunday or Monday, that these are real people who are on the mm-hmm. field doing a job. It is a job. Like this is what you get in trouble. You get suspended. Yeah. You get reprimanded. Exactly. You get you get applauded. Um, it is a job. And I remember Derwin Gray, Pastor Gray, telling about how he got saved in the NFL uh, by a teammate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just and hearing Colt also talk about this, just this ministry of like being this huge light inside of this organization. It's the same for all of us at our jobs and where we go every day and the people we interact with that we have this opportunity. Well, Benjamin, thanks so much for your time. I do want to ask you, what are you reading these days? What am I reading these days outside of, of, of my Bible, um, which I'm I'm trying to read through the Bible again. This will be the third year. I love it. I was struggling. To, I never could do it until like three years ago. And I finally made it. So that, Once you that's get through what, those past couple of months, it's like it's exactly. a little bit easier. You can, you can see the light. I see yeah. the light. Um, I recently read a book called Vertical Marriage by Dave and Ann Wilson. Uh, love the Wilsons. Yeah. So 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 in the NFL, you know, they were chaplains. Yes. And yeah. And they there's an organization called Pro Athlete Outreach that a pros to pros ministry that mm-hmm. Chris and I've been involved with for a long time, but they've always been a part of that. And I think this year, especially with marriage, um, there has been an attack on marriage in in our sphere mm-hmm. and also in our house. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we have to continually work on. Yep. And so I said, you know what? I've got this book. I'm going to try to read a marriage book a year amongst yeah. the other books that I'm reading mm-hmm. because 
it's important to keep working that muscle as well as all the others. It totally is. And Dave and Anna are, are huge mentors in that and really speak mm-hmm. a lot of truth. So pointing us back to Jesus. Well, Benjamin, thank you so much. You guys, um, the book, The New Fight for Life, Row, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice comes out um, next month. You guys can get it. You can pre-order it now. Benjamin, grateful. Thank you for coming on the happy hour. Thank you for having me. Can't wait till next time. Hey guys, I want to say real quick, I mentioned in Benjamin's show that we had had some previous episodes about um, incarceration. And I just want to let you know, I misspoke. They're actually coming up next week. So the next four episodes actually have something to do a little bit roundabout way with incarceration. And so I think you're going to want to stick around for those shows. So I just want to give you that clarifying moment in case you think, what? I missed these. I thought we just had Tish and Katie on and Bethany. Well, yes, they're coming up next. So don't miss out. We have really great shows finishing out this month of May. The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey is a production of Ivy Media Podcasts. Executive produced by Jamie Ivey. Produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Edited by Angie Elkins. Show notes by Nikki Ogden. Art by Jen Jet Barrett. Original music by Matt Graham. And I'm your host, Jamie. Have a happy hour with a friend.